20 square blocks. 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 20 square blocks. Square. Of 20 square blocks. Moving from the UK to Australia in the mid-1960s, an aspiring young drummer found himself living in Melbourne during the heyday of Sharpies, Rockers and Mods. Jeff Hassel chatted to me about his love of music and what led him to an unexpected yet possibly the most fulfilling chapter in his music career. 1962, I was 11 and I saw the Beatles on TV. I saw Ringo on the kit and thought, that's, that's, I want to do that. That's it. That's always gone for all money. Whereabouts are you from exactly? Bristol. Bristol, okay. That's the accent. Yeah, that's right. I was still (laughs) in England when when the Beatles came out here. But obviously, you're growing up in Bristol, you are watching the Beatles, that inspires you. Every kid over a certain age wanted to be in a pop band back then, uh, when that happened. And so several friends of mine, we decided... We had formed a band which never really... Nothing ever really happened, um, I think. Well, it was kind of a band, but it was a band in our heads. We didn't, I don't yeah. think, we, we never really played. Do you have a name? Uh, the Downbeats, because we lived in a place called Downend, which is a, a little suburb. Okay. It once was a village. It was a suburb of Bristol. Downbeats works. Yeah, well, you know, it probably would have been a good name if we'd ever turned into an actual band, but mum and dad decided to emigrate to Australia, much to my dismay. Right. Was that bad? Yeah, that was bad. I was f- just about to turn 14. I had a very good circle of friends. Happy, very happy with my life. Didn't want to know about moving to Melbourne because all I knew about Melbourne was that's where the Seekers came from and I thought they were daggy ass. I'm going, oh, we're going there. And so then we moved out here, met some kids and we actually formed a band um, called The Younger Version People at school just called us the Younger Virgins, which, which was kind of, ouch. Oh, because, that go. hurt because it was true. Um, <laughs> and, um, and we actually did a couple of gigs. You know, we actually started to do a few gigs. Did you do your own songs, like write your own songs? Not at that. We were doing Hendrix covers, trying right. to cover Hendrix songs. Then we, got some, we met some dodgy little agent in a bedsit in Hawthorne who was... Um, got us a gig in one faggy for 50 bucks at the one faggy town hall and that was like a proper gig you know that was one of the back in the 60s that was the mainstay of live music was the town hall gigs you know and all the bands like the twilights and the masters apprentices and all those guys used to sort of like just travel around from town hall to town hall doing sometimes three four five gigs a night Um, We were just this kind of like sacrificial lamb cover, you know, support band from Melbourne. I don't know if we ever got paid. We didn't care. We was just like we were driving down in the bass player. It's 39 Chevrolet. It's like, this is rock and roll. You know, we did a few more things. And then I think we were playing at a dancing, a church dance in Coburg. And we got picked on by some, I can't remember if they were Sharpies or Rockers. And it ended up like uh, in a massive fight. And we ended up, we're like defending ourselves with our equipment. I remember the bass player swinging his bass around his head, you know, like, <laughs> like a big axe. And the guitar player cowering in the corner protecting his guitar because he had the most expensive guitar. Now hang on, this was in a church. 
It was a church. No, it was a hall. Church hall. Yeah, you know, it was just a social club thing. So how did how, how did these there was a lot of that in the sixties fights all the time, just kids, you know, just fights. Right. More than you get now. But sharpies, sharpies and rockers, yeah, deadly enemies. Right. We were more scared of sharpies than we were of rockers. I had I was best friends with a couple of rocker boys at school. So rockers and sharpies were deadly enemies. Yeah. And by rockers, you mean anyone in a rock band? No, no, I mean rockers. Rockers were, were like greasers. They were leather jackets, motorbikes, right. Elvis Presley. Got it. Rockabilly, you know, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis. Sharpies. There was a band next door, and they were all doing cream covers, and they were Sharpies. But they were nice Sharpies, you know. Nice Sharpies. <laughs> Hashtag not all Sharpies. So you could tell by looking at someone back then that, okay, this, this, that's a Sharpie. Oh, yeah. It was all about style. Yep, it was like it. baggy pegged pants, stacked heels, and, and really skinny rib jumpers. Right. So there were Sharpies, rockers, and then just everyone else in the Well, middle. then there was mods. It was also jazzers. Jazzers. Duffel coats, hush puppies, corduroy. And they, they were into the jazz scene. Hush puppies. Yeah. You may well laugh. They're still around. Okay. So you were a rocker? No. No, you weren't a rocker. No, we. I think we were more mods because uh, we did like the easy beats and they were... Which one's a mod again? Well, the, the prototype mod band is the Who. So there's kind of like modified beetle cuts and sharp clothes, but, you know, like suits and... and but these, these little tribal style things morph all the time. Right. For a while there, there was a group called Stylists, and they're kind of like mutant subgroup of Sharpies crossed with mods. And they'd listen to Style Council? No, this is way, way before Style Council. I remember that their band they liked was the Purple Hearts. Is that an English, English band? No, a Melbourne band. Okay. How long were you in Melbourne for? 1965 until 2000 when I moved to Ballarat. Okay, so you're there for most of your life. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And but, but during that time, of course, you're in several bands or one band and you're... Well, to the, the band at school died after... Right, back, back to that, that hall in Coburg. We were so depressed after that night, we just broke up. <laughs> it was, I mean, we were just pretty green. We were still at school. It's like... Nobody was hurt apart from maybe the bass guitar. I can't remember if anyone was seriously injured. Hmm. Well, I think, you know, it was a dry gig and there were adults on hand and I, I, it's fuzzy, but I've just got these... What, what did the adults do? What? Well, they would have broken it up. Okay. I ended up being at Ross Hannaford's house one afternoon in St Kilda and he was the guitar player from Daddy Cool, tall guy. I was there with his ex-girlfriend who eventually became my wife and she said, let's go around to Hannah's. And um, he was in the front room with Tim Gaze, who's another legendary Australian guitar player of the 70s and they were just jamming around and Ross turned to me and said, hey, you play the drums, don't you? And I'm like, no. Oh. <laughs> Because I, you know, I'd like, they were just, I idolised Daddy Cool. That was like my ideal band. It was like, what band would you like to be in? It would be that one. I know, and they said, well, let's go next door. Marco's got a drum kit. And we went next door to Mad Marco's place, and there was a drum kit. And we ended up playing Shadows instrumentals all afternoon. 
songs like Apache, Flingle Bunt. You don't, you, they had a no, whole, I don't know what you're talking about. I know, about. I know. It was a whole genre. And it was kind of like closely read to surf music. But, you know, we just jammed all afternoon. And I remember Ross saying, hey, you're a good drummer, man. Who do you play with? I said, I don't. And they had this sort of revelation that, oh, shit, I can play the drums. Anyway, by 78, five years down the track, Ross had left Daddy Cool, Mondo Rock had died, and um, he was in love with reggae music, and he wanted a reggae band. He couldn't find a reggae drummer. I used to go around to his house in Paran, and he had a drum kit and a stack of Jamaican vinyl he'd brought back from Daddy Cool's tour, and uh, he used to leave me a little saucer of, um, of, of of smoke and his vinyl collection and say look I've got to go out man he said just you know and I used to sit there and play along with Burning Spear, the Heptones, Toots and the Maytals and try and figure out just by playing along listening and playing and and then eventually we uh, we worked together making an album for the mission which is you know like a fundraiser thing. Oh, so you did actually get to play with yeah. Ross Hannaford? Yeah and then he said all right I want to call it Lucky Dog there's this pub in Richmond that'll give us a gig. And we worked, we worked quite a lot. We used to play around quite a lot. I was working three, four, sometimes five nights a week. How long did Lucky Dog last for? Two years, but it was in two incarnations. There was Lucky Dog Mark I, and then there was a bit of a break. Uh, Ross broke it up because he, he'd, you know, he'd get... <laughs> he used to get restless. I went off and joined a band called The Fabulaires with um, Wayne Burt and Greg Champion. Um, it was like a rock cabaret band from Adelaide. And then The Fabulaires were involved in a, a car accident, half of us. We had played at Wagga University, University of Wagga Wagga, the night before, and we were heading to Albury for another gig. But we went on a back road. Unmarked intersection, truck coming the other way. Killed one of the female singers. So there's a, a... There was one dead young, young woman dead by the side of the road and the guitar player and the other singer, female singer distressed and wounded. I was first on the scene of the car that got hit by the truck. Jeff came to Ballarat in early 2000 and found himself working at Pinhark Disability. After working there for a while, they came to him with a question. Are you interested in running a social, a recreation group for a bunch of our clients on a Saturday afternoon who are interested in music? And I said, yes. And by now, I was learning to play the guitar so I had just enough chops to be able to respond. Because when I got with these, I had no disability experience. I'd, I'd started working with guys with acquired brain injuries, just took them out for coffee and stuff. But these guys were different, like they, they wanted to get into music. And I remember without any training, this probably couldn't happen now. Because I was just an old musician, you know, with a first aid certificate. Uh, and I just said, well... Let's, I challenged them. I said, let's see what it sounds like if we make our own music. Because selfishly, 
I didn't want to get bored. So I just want to get this right. So you're, you're with Pinark and you're working with how many people are we talking about? Well, it was about 12. So there's 12 people that don't know how to play any instruments. One of them knew how to play. Two of them knew a little, a little bit. Right, right. But they've got a lot of enthusiasm. They've got a lot of enthusiasm. And I thought, well, what can we do with what we got? And I remember thinking, what am I going to do with these guys? They can't play. They sound terrible. A few of them could carry a tune, maybe. Some of them were coachable. Some of them had some hope of learning to play and sing. I've been in a lot of bands. I know what breaks bands up and I know what holds them together. So if you're willing to um, give it a go, we'll give it a go. So then that became a band called the Funky Turtles. And I I just thought, well, we've got two, two encouraging signs is there's punk music and there's rap. You know, so with rap, all you need to do is have a story and punch it out pretty convincingly. Punk music, same thing. And chops are not top of the top of the list. And I thought, okay, let's go. And uh, I challenged them to tell me their stories, and we just started writing. It was like I was stumbling blindly into music therapy, which already existed, but I didn't know anything about it. So I kind of in, I was reinventing the wheel, uh, and I just collected their stories. And I remember along the way working out like uh, you might have a story which is a painful memory which might make a good rock song and giving them big speeches about this is a painful memory for you but if you if you have the courage to sort of turn it into a song and tell the world other people out there who have been through similar things will hear it and that's how music works that's how songs work that's how a song connects with people and I remember challenging them to think of songs that touched them and what they were about and they kind of got it so anyway long story short we ended up writing and recording three albums three CDs worth over the time I was there and making quite a few video clips because I found video clips were a good way to include people <laughs> that couldn't play to save their lives it's like if you're making a music video you can find a job for everyone yeah <laughs> uh, and I got, I got a statewide award, we travelled to Horsham, we travelled to Melbourne, we played at the Esplanade in St Kilda. So you're playing at the SB, um, this is pretty good. So what was the Funky Turtles? Yeah. What was the award you won? Uh, it was a state-based, a statewide disability award. Got a certificate, bunch of flowers and a bowl. Okay, but this is not nothing, this is, this is pretty cool. Yeah, it was at 2010 I think. And what did you find changed with the people in the band? confidence they bonded the the esprit de corps uh there uh, there was a my my golden example which is one of the earliest examples of something happening and me realizing in hindsight what had happened was one of the guys wrote a song called i'm not going to jail which was just him telling the story about being sent to a normal high school. We'd had a massive intellectual disability and and health problems as well. Uh, And deafness, you know, poor eyesight. Um, And he'd been sent to a normal school to integrate and had been teased and threatened, you know, like apparently the girls used to say, the cops are gonna come and take you away, weirdo, and stuff like that. And um, what came out of him was the lyrics, I'm not going to jail because I haven't done anything wrong. Don't think of me like a bad person. 
and um, and don't think about locking me up in the big house. And that was the lyrics that he came out with. And um, when we did it, because he couldn't play, but one thing he was good at is mum and dad bought him an electric guitar amp. He was really good at getting howling feedback, a la Jimi Hendrix and Pete Townsend. So we just built a soundscape of layers and layers of howling, screaming, growling feedback. And I, I put my best freeform Mitch Mitchell, heavy jazz drumming, just like no time, just blasting. And we put it together and he screamed the lyrics over and over again. When interviewed about it, he said that these things used to really, really uh, bother me, but now they're in the song, they don't bother me anymore. So it's kind of like, but somehow you, you give voice to that thing which is painful or sad and you give it a form and then you externalize it. It's somehow it's removed. It's like you can look at it and go, yeah, it doesn't bother me anymore. Thanks to Jeff Hassel. Not Going to Jail was written and performed by the Funky Turtles. Music for the podcast is by Ryan Goodwin. Listen to more of his work at virtuallyryan.com. Additional material written by Anne Murison. Editing by Ricky Cheno. And thanks to H-Studios for the use of their studios. I'm Ben Plaza and this is 20 Square Blocks. (laughs) 